So the whole China-Canada situation spilled into the United Nations General Assembly yesterday. Our Foreign Minister Mark Garneau was addressing the UN, uh, and he talked about the solidarity of Canada and its allies in defending human rights and international law in the wake of the release of uh, the two Michaels. Garneau thanked international partners in standing with Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor during their detention. Canada observed the rule of law, and two Canadian citizens paid a heavy price for this commitment. We did so as a matter of principle, and we are proud of the courage of our two citizens, the good faith and resilience of their families, and the determination and creativity of our diplomats. I want to recognize the support of our many international partners in standing with these Canadian citizens, as as well as those who helped in developing and signing the Declaration on Arbitrary Detention in State-to-State Relations. Didn't go over well with the Chinese delegation, who immediately pushed back and said, this is not what you're saying it is. Um, It was actually Meng Wanzhou that was held for political purposes on trumped-up charges, and we weren't retaliating, and they were released for medical reasons, not in a tit-for-tat. So the debate rages on at the highest levels. Fact of the matter is, Meng Wanzhou was sent home. Minutes later, the two Michaels were sent home. Let's talk about this with David Webster, an associate uh, professor of history at Bishop's University. Uh, David, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks for the invitation. So... Just that fact alone, the fact that the two Michaels were in the air within minutes after Mung was in the air from Vancouver, to me, that puts an absolute end to any argument that their detention was anything but hostage diplomacy. It seems pretty obvious, isn't it? Well, I would certainly agree with that, yes. Um, It's a case of hostage diplomacy. It's been officially denied by both the Chinese and American governments. Nevertheless, as you said, the uh, facts are pretty clear of uh, what was going on, yes. So this this was a swap. And so what does that tell us? Clearly, uh, China indicating they're not playing by the same rules, and that's something that they obviously want people to know, right? Like, take us seriously here. Well, I mean, I think that's, that's an important point, yes, that um, there, are sort of, there are a lot of people saying sort of gotcha to China. Um, you know, we've proved that you were lying when you said it wasn't um, any connection between the two cases, and when you said these two Canadians were spying, uh, you know, this proves that you're not uh, telling the truth with that. Um, I don't think that actually bothers the Chinese government, because I think for them this was a power play. Um, This was an assertion of China's power, an assertion of China's right to, when it suits its national interest, change the rules um, and change the international rules of the game to suit its needs. And, you know, China's position, not mine, but the Chinese government, I think, is that uh, they should have the same right to make and break rules in the international system as the United States has. There should be parity between these two great powers. Um, and, and it is uh, their claim that that's exactly around, what, right. <laughs> that's what that's what their claim is with Meng. They're saying that that's exactly what the United States did with Meng Wanzhou. Uh, she was they detained for political Meng Wanzhou was the hostage and that the two Michaels were spies, yes. So it's a mirror image of the, of the uh, position coming from this side of the ocean uh, is what's being broadcast from China, yes. Is that a fair point, though, David? I mean, do, are, are they right? I mean, we know the United States sort of being the, the big bully on the block can do things a little differently and operates, you know, in international realms, not like everybody else sometimes. But um, yeah. we sort of have this belief, at least, that Western democracies adhere to the rule of law does China have a point in saying, you know what, you guys play fast and loose with the rules, why can't we? Well, I think China has a point in it. Um, Canada didn't, uh, 
issue an arrest warrant for Meng Wanzhou. That was the United States. Um, when he was president, Donald Trump sort of suggested that this was a bargaining chip to put pressure on China. Um, for all the various official denials that fly, I don't think that um, there's a lot of question that China's trying to say, we can break the rules because you break the rules. Um, from, the point of, I mean, from the point of view of any Chinese decision maker, what they've done here is arrested the princess of the uh, biggest corporation in China. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if the son of the owner of an American multinational corporation was arrested, then the United States would be extremely unhappy. So China's behaving in the same way that the United States might behave from its, uh, from its viewpoint. Um, you can't, this is not just some random citizen. This is um, a key figure sure. in the Chinese business elite, right? Um, and they, they are saying, yeah, the, the U.S. breaks the rules all the time, so why can't we? Or why can't we co-create the rules of a new international system with the United States? And this is, so it's an assertion of Chinese great power status, and it's an assertion of uh, China's position as a central country in the world. I mean, the name China, the Chinese name for China, Zhongguo, literally means the central country, right? So they Mm -hmm. want to be at the center of things. Now, how does it all play in with Canada? I mean, Canada's relationship with China has always been... it's been tough to nail down. They've waffled, and, and I think yeah. that's because there's two competing interests. They want to be seen as a country, you know, that follows the rules of law, Canada I'm talking about now. But at the same time, they recognize there's a tremendous amount of economic pressure here. So they've been sort of flip-flopping on some of these issues over time as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, Canada-China relations, you could write whole books on it, and people have, of course. Um, and, you know, Canada has traditionally had a position of trying to be really friendly with China um, ever since Pierre Trudeau um, uh, established diplomatic relations with uh, communist China in uh, 1970. Um, and the goal then has been to engage with China as much as possible, and increasingly, as China gets wealthier in the last um, couple of decades, to try to get profits for Canadian business by trading with China, um, you know, pretend, about to become the largest economy in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of money to be made. So Canada talks about values and norms and rule-based order and all of these uh, slogans. Um, but the hard reality is that Canada hopes to make a lot of money out of trading with China. Um, and there is a lot of money to be made. And I do think that when there's talk of advocacy of Canadian values, it's rather undercut by Canadian actions. So, and there's examples of that uh, for several decades now going on. So when we take a look at what happened with the two Michaels, and now there's a travel advisory out by the government of Canada talking about arbitrary detention by Chinese authorities and things like that. So things are not in a good spot. There, there's no question about that. What does Canada need to do now to get on the right footing with this relationship? Yeah, well... It's a tough one. Um, I don't know if we need a travel advisory to uh, tell us not to go to China right now, necessarily. (laughs) It's not top of agenda for a number of people now. Um, What can we do? Well, I'll start with what we can't do, which is return to business as usual, which is what some have, have been calling for. We also can't start treating China as an enemy and start joining military alliances against it, because although that might feel good, it's not actually going to be a very effective policy. Um, so I think we need a couple of things. The first thing we need is that uh, ju- 
just as Canadian policy towards the United States is informed by really good awareness of U.S. politics and society, we need better awareness in this country of Chinese politics and society. Um, this is not the first case of hostage diplomacy. There was one way back in the 1960s with a, Canadian, with a journalist uh, swap, and um, China behaved in very similar ways, but nobody remembers these things. So we need better knowledge of what's going on in China in this country. Um, secondly, when we're talking about human rights, we consistently undercut our own rhetoric with our actions. So when we're talking about promotion of human rights in China, um, we stopped in the 1990s criticizing China in UN human rights forums and started having a closed doors human rights dialogue with them instead. And of course, it didn't achieve anything in terms of advancing human rights in China. Um, but the Chinese stand up and say, don't talk to us about human rights. Take a look at what goes on with indigenous people in Canada. They've said that publicly. Yes, and they're not wrong. <laughs> I mean, this is absolutely the case. But I mean, I think what we need is both both of these countries to take honest looks at their own human rights records. Um, and that's, you know, indigenous people in Canada are, to put it mildly, very badly treated in all sorts of sectors. Um, so are indigenous people such as the Uyghurs in China. And there's a case to be made that really both countries need to take a good hard look in the mirror at themselves um, and start making some changes internally. And there's also a case to be made that when Canada talks about promoting human rights in China, it's going to have to uh, be consistent about that um, instead of changing right. on a dime instead of, as we did with the Tiananmen Square killings in 1989, imposing sanctions, but carefully calculated so they would not harm Canadian business interests. Um, we're going to have to potentially take a risk to Canadian business interests if we want to actually have a consistent human rights advocacy policy, um, which you know the foreign minister is touching on, these ideas of multilateralism and human rights and international norms in the, uh, in the clip that you played earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, one follow-up here before I let you go. You mentioned that you didn't think um, increasing military pressure is an effective strategy. It looks like you know some other countries are talking about a containment strategy, and we see the nuclear submarine deal happening with Australia, the UK, and the United States. Why do you think more, uh, not, not a show of force, but you understand what I mean, uh, a stronger defense posture? Why do you think that's not an effective strategy? Um, I think that if you surround another country with uh, hostile military forces, then you're likely to increase the paranoia in that country. So, and this is a country that has leaders who could be well prone to paranoia. No country is more ringed about with hostile military presence than North Korea. Um, we have yeah. a pariah state, a hermit state with nuclear weapons as a result. It hasn't been an effective containment strategy um, in the way that uh, had been hoped for. So that's not effective. It's just likely to lead to an arms race with China and people are already talking about a new Cold War and we don't want that. Right. right? Yeah, so keep the channels of communication open then. So we need to keep the channels of communication open, but we also have to be consistent and speak about um, values, including human rights, and keep advocating for other Canadians who are still in prison, such as Hussein Chalil, um, another Canadian citizen who's been held in China since uh, 2006. Yeah, so there's dozens of more them. More to be done. Yeah. Uh, David, fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. That is David Webster, who is an associate professor of history at Bishop's University.